the gutter. I'm Haley Beehall. Today on the pod, we talk with our newest best friend, Sergio Yanis from Arvada High School in Arvada, Colorado. Sergio tells us about his family history of journalism, his journey to the yearbook room, and his journey from Florida to Colorado. His new school is very different from his old, but in both he's found his most important role is helping his students find their ways. He says the best way to produce good work is being intentional about investing in your people. And he takes that seriously. He tries to understand where students are coming from so he can approach them where they are. And that's different for each person. We talk about diversity and inclusion in his new school, how his staff is looking more and more like the school, how he's working to help his students navigate their complicated realities. And very importantly, Sergio has the best taste in pizza toppings. Just saying. So we are here today with Sergio Yanes from Arvada High School in Arvada. No, it's Arvada. 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 Arvada High School. Yeah. Arvada. I can't say it. I can't say it. From Ar- Arvada. Arvada, Colorado. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hard to pronounce. So we always like to ask uh, how you got into the yearbook world or this classic journalism world. So how did you? Um, okay, so I was kind of bred for it. My <laughs> grandfather in Venezuela actually pioneered um, broadcast journalism in, oh, wow. in Venezuela. Um, his father taught himself, so my great-grandfather taught himself how to read and write and kind of made a name for himself that way, traveling the country, writing letters for people. And then my grandfather took that a step further and um, went into journalism and he's reported on things like he reported on the moon landing from Venezuela. He was in the front lines of Vietnam. Um, I have pictures of him with any number of people interviewing Kennedy, interviewing, you know, Salvador Dali. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And then the, so then my mother and my, my aunt, my younger aunt, they're both uh, graphic designers um, by training so uh, that was naturally a perfect blend that I was going to fall into yearbook world. Uh, so when I found it in high school, I actually started off as a marching band kid. Mm-hmm. And I did that for all four years. But my senior year, I was like, you know what? This seems like something that I really like to do because I had been dabbling in like PageMaker, you know, the old mm-hmm. dinosaur. Um, <laughs> and I made it into and I made it onto the yearbook staff. And, and that's my one year of scholastic yearbook experience. Um, but I was, I mean, that's really all it took. Like that taste was what drove me to like really want to do it, um, even more. So when I was in, um, going through college and when I was doing my internship, uh, I remember specifically asking in my internship application, please pair me up with somebody in publications. Yeah, that's how I landed this. Um, I had to wait five years, um, in my first job in Florida before the position became available. But once I took over, it was, it was a done deal. It was like, I'm not giving this up for anybody. (laughs) Um, and then when I interviewed, when I interviewed for the position in Colorado, that was, it was specifically an English position, but I just kept talking about publications (laughs) and journalism. And so they offered it to me because I guess they didn't want to lose me. (laughs) I don't know. It sounds a little, it sounds a little like I'm bragging, but um, I I just, I think I'm a weird fanboy about that. Yeah. I always think it's funny that like the people that are really into your book will figure out ways to weave it into the interviews that they have. Mm-hmm. So when I interviewed for college, like I swear I talked about your book for 45 <laughs> minutes and like everyone else was like, yeah, I talked to him for like 10, 15 minutes. And then I left and I was like, uh, okay. Like, yeah. I don't know what to tell you, yeah. <laughs> but 
Yes, I, before I got this job after college, I would like, you know, I was interviewing for jobs, every single job interview, I talked about yearbook, and they're like, okay, and yeah. then I'm like, okay, I'll just go work for a yearbook company <laughs> where, like, they care that I'm talking about yearbook. Why did you move to Colorado? Uh, it was an act of self-preservation. Um, there were a lot of things happening with me in my personal life, but and also in, in my professional life that um, just weren't jiving anymore. And it just felt like it was time for me to, to move on to something else. Um, I had started and built a, a successful publication there. And that was really my pride and joy, even though I was teaching other things. Um, but that, you know, I really loved doing it. I loved working with those students. It just felt like um, it was a, a perfect blend of signs of there's something more for you out there. And uh, my former intern, actually, um, the second intern ever that I had, she had since then moved to Colorado. And she's the one who told me about the position opening. They had already gone through a round of candidates and they didn't like any that they interviewed. And she fought for me hard. And um, it was, again, one more of those signs. I was like, okay, maybe the place is Colorado. Yeah, (laughs) There are two things that I think you said that you said that I identify with if something is not jiving like you should figure out ways to get yourself out of that situation whether that's you know moving jobs or changing jobs or moving states and the other one was using your network to get positions that you want Mm -hmm. do not burn bridges because anyone can help you down the road (laughs) oh i burn bridges but (laughs) (laughs) but but like those people that you mentor or like work with or anything like that having them as a connection down the road is super helpful um especially when you want to change jobs or Mm -hmm. want to switch uh states or whatever and you made it into such a hotbed of yearbook like i walked into like the gold star location right. for for yearbooks it was like you know to the north there's somebody to the southwest like everywhere i look i'm at a stone's throw from somebody who um is incredible and is a source of inspiration for any number of different things because you know as a yearbook advisor we do actually you know 30 different jobs instead of right. just one so mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> very true being in this hotbed of journalism and especially being surrounded by the Carrie Faust, the Carrie Hendricks, the Justin Daigles, the Annie Falkenbergs, the continuing Anastasia Harrison, Jen Palmer, yeah, Jen yeah. Palmer, everyone in Colorado that is an advisor, basically. How has that helped you grow professionally and grow your program and uh, take it to the next level? Uh, I mean, so the coolest thing about it is it's really a situation where, yeah, we're in our own schools, but no man is an island, which is so rare to find in journalism world in general, but especially for yearbook advisors, because there's only one yearbook advisor for a school unless you, you know, are in a special situation that requires two co-advisors or something. But um, being able to, you know, shoot out a message, sure, but knowing that like, oh, hey, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go hang out with, you know, with, with my friends, basically. Right. Um, and knowing that like, I can just give them a look when they ask, how, how has your year been? And they'll be like, same. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, the, the unspoken language and that human connection is, is so amazing. And 
I don't know. It, it was very different from um, Florida. There were still amazing people in Florida. Uh, but things in the South are just so far apart. Mm-hmm. You have to drive everywhere. And it's just, yeah. So having them in closer proximity. And that um, that has really helped me up my game even yeah. more. So I'm always amazed when I look at Colorado on a map. I'm like, there's that school. There's that school. They're all right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. It's all within an hour drive. Right. It's crazy. What was the experience like having having the experience in Florida as an advisor and then starting over across the country with a new staff? Like what was mm. what was going on with the yearbook staff when you got there? Um, so I walked into I walked into a staff that knew knew a lot of the basics um they didn't really know a lot of the reasonings why but they you know so they knew things like uh, we design in double page spreads and yeah um we have to make a ladder so they they had a lot of things in place um they weren't necessarily a journalistic book and that was one of those things that um i saw as a potential to really um not only elevate the quality of the book um, in Florida, but also uh, give students an actual potential or an actual possible career path. Because I mean, in your book, you're talking graphic design, you're talking reporting, you're talking um, you're talking project management, photography. there's photography, yeah, it, and it's all there. Um, and those are all incredibly useful skills. And to be able to provide students with that opportunity to see like, oh, hey, it's not just this one thing that I'm doing. I can actually take it and go further with it. Um, I, I seized that chance. And so um, that's really where I started. We, you know, we did from the ground up. I talked a lot about reasonings and everything. And in five years, it was fun to see that staff grow into a staff that was not dependent on me. And I really fell into that advisor role, and I so it morphed from like teacher to advisor, which was amazing. And yeah, that last year that I was there, it was great. I had um, a great group of editors and staff, and I was like, "You want to do that? Cool, let's go do that." Oh, what what is that? Yep, you know, you're absolutely right. And you know, even when um, there were some there were some uh, press rights things that happened that last year, and they contacted SPLC all on their own, and they just they just had it, and they you know knew what to do, and I was just able to sit back and watch the magic happen which is beautiful wow do you want to tell us about the press rights stuff it was a an administrator was proposing prior review even even though in practice we had never had prior review she she found some of the things in uh, in previous books not to her not to her satisfaction or not what she was expecting to find in a yearbook and and we had a lot of conversations. I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible because <laughs> I'm still a little bit heated about some things about the, yeah. And so uh, when when she proposed that, the students were like, "No, that's not right." We, you know, the only the only downside is that we didn't necessarily have a, a manual that had a written policy in place. Um, However, you know, we were, it, it didn't go very far. It was one of those that was like, the, the words were said, we got upset, they got upset, there was a little bit of tension, we were able to still move past it. Um, and then um, after I left, things obviously changed because new advisor and everything right. like that. So, right. It sounds like you've built two programs kind of up from, to be more journalistic and more career, future career oriented. 
for those that are trying to transition their staffs to the more journalistic career driven publications, what's like kind of the first steps that they should take to, to do that? Um, understand that you don't know anything. <laughs> <I> th- <laughs> um, it's so there was a lot. So the first, the first go around I feel was a success. Um, and I learned a lot. And the, the second time that, you know, when I, when I, um, was hired and started this position in Colorado, um, I wanted to do things a lot differently because, it's a different school, different students, they react differently. And that was a, a huge thing that I had noticed is, you know, the approach is super key. At the end of the day, I have, uh, you know, it's all about reminding yourself that people are human. Um, and the biggest thing, and I was actually just talking to one of my editors about this, um, you have to take people where they are. And you have to meet them where they are and, and go from there. Because you can't set expectations that they're not ready to meet if they're, you know, um, otherwise you're just setting yourself up for failure. And that will look different in different situations. Sometimes it may feel like it's going really fast. Sometimes it feels like it's, you know, dragging on forever and you're not making any headway. But every single conversation, especially in the beginning, is super important. Um, so yeah, the, the those human connections, the um, understanding people where they are and, and just taking those each of those moments, one step at a time, um, is super key. Um, I'm that person who needs to do everything all at once. <laughs> and um, I realize that that's not going to work. But <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you have, you said you have to take it moment by moment because uh, as yearbookers, I think we look at it as like one giant moment. Like we make this book of moments and we're kind of missing the cues for me the universe telling us to pause and stop at those moments and um because you know we're just going 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 and uh stopping and pausing for those moments that the universe is telling you to stop and pause for mm-hmm. like recognize those signs oh yeah i mean we're making a book but there are people who are making the book right. you know and so you if you invest in your people the payoff is going to be huge how have you tried to invest in your people um, is it, I mean, it varies, right? So some, some people need somebody to listen to them. Um, some people need somebody to gently nudge them. Some people need somebody to remind them of what they're capable of. Um, and so in Florida, um, very different from my environment in, in, um, Colorado, in Florida, it was, uh, I was in a, um, suburban, fringe, rural, um, uh, upper middle, upper middle class, um, predominantly white um, environment, and those students come with a specific set of experiences and worldviews that I had to honor in a particular way um, and, and understand in a particular way. Um, and so, a lot of the conversations with them were geared towards okay, this was an expectation that was set up. Have you thought about why that expectation was set up? Have you thought about what you can do and contribute to that expectation? Um, and, you know, the little bit of a rebel in me, I was like, well, why aren't you challenging that authority kind of deal? But, you know, I try not to get in trouble with parents. <laughs> um, so, but in in Colorado, um, it's been very different. So while I have had experiences with students from 
um, diverse backgrounds or from, um, you know, who have had trauma in the past and everything. Um, it was at a minimum in Florida here. It's a little bit more prevalent. I'm, I'm encountering a lot more diversity. I'm encountering a lot more, um, uh, trauma filled backgrounds, um, whether it's episodic or, you know, ongoing mm-hmm. or sustained. Um, and it's, it, the approach is, it has been very different. And, um, I have found a lot of students here who have wanted to be somewhere but not really seen that there could be a path and that if there wasn't that they could make a path in certain ways. Um, And so a lot of those conversations, um, even just this weekend, I've been having conversations about, you know, with one of my seniors, okay, you're going off to to college. Um, What about your family? You know, you've... You've been helping around the house. You're, you're going out of state. How is that looking? And she was kind of freaking out. And I was like, okay, let's troubleshoot this. Let's back mm-hmm. it up. What can you do and everything? So, um, yeah, the, the, the approaches do have to vary depending on, again, where, where they're at and what's going on in their lives. I mean, I have had so many conversations that have had nothing to do with yearbook or journalism, but it eventually trickles into that mm-hmm. um, in one way or another. Um, because that's just what they needed in that moment. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about your town that you live in now, like the environment around the school and then also the school community and how they affect each other? Sure. Um, so the school is actually over a hundred years old. Um, the first Arvada school opened in 1900. Um, and it's been going on since then. So there's been a long tradition. It was, originally a farming community um and over time it's obviously changed as colorado has changed and very different demographic now from where it was um 10 years ago um, our school is currently about 63 percent latino um and uh 40 something percent white and then uh, a mixture of a bunch of different things so you know two or more races um Asian, Pacific Islander, so on and so forth. Um, And the added thing, so Colorado has um, choice enrollment in most of its districts. And so students can go wherever they want to go um, as long as they provide their own transportation. Uh, And what the challenge that that poses is, although the neighborhoods around us are more established um, and predominantly white, that we have a lot of students who come from everywhere else to come to Arvada. Um, and the students from the neighborhood, a lot of times, kind of go to other schools. We have four or five different high schools, four different high schools within 20 minutes of our school. So there, so it's a very mobile community. Um, the students that we do have are fantastic. Um, and like I said, it's, they have a lot of mobility. Um, there are some, you know, transience issues, um, that happen. And so it's, uh, it's life, honestly, Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only way that I can describe it. Like if you want to look at life (laughs) to come to our school and, (laughs) and see life happening every single day. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in how, you are mentoring these young, these young people that look like you, that are the same life experiences. Um, um, so I actually, I mean, growing up in Miami, Miami is a hotbed of culture. Mm-hmm. 
Tampa, Florida, Orlando, Florida, the big city areas, you're right, the big metro areas, Jacksonville, you've got a lot of things happening, all that stuff. But Florida is actually, outside of those metro areas, a very rural state um, and a very swampy state. <laughs> um, I went to I went to Florida State and we made a lot of swamp jokes because we don't like to talk about the gators. Um, <laughs> that swamp place. Up yeah, there. the swamp place. The, that place that smells funny. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, that's where camp was every single year. Um, yearbook camp. And but anyway, so when I it, it was very much a joke, but it was very real. Um, when I graduated high school and went to college at Florida State in Tallahassee we all said, my group of friends and I said that we were moving up south because we left what we were calling northern North Havana, basically, (laughs) and and moving up to within 30 minutes of the Georgia border. Huge culture shock. Yes. Um, I went from people confusing me for being Cuban to people confusing me for being Mexican um, because that's what the experience is in in those places. Um, And, you know, they'll say... Little things like, oh, do you speak Mexican? Um, how long have you been in this country? That one's a fun one. That is, right? So um, it was a reverse culture shock. Um, and But, I mean, it taught me to um, that there you have to talk to different people in different ways, um, which was really, really interesting, uh, kind of adapting to, like, the southern genteelness and everything. Having been in Miami and near the Georgia border and – now in Colorado, how are you able to take your own experiences and share them with people that would be going through a similar situation in like maybe a couple of years or maybe, you know, this upcoming fall? It's a, I, it's a very real thing. Um, it's something that I have learned to navigate because I had to. There was no choice in that. It's, you know, I have to survive somehow. Right. Um, and so... It's not always something that I like to do, but again, you know, in the act of self-preservation, sometimes you've got to play that game, um, which brings up some very interesting conversations with with my Latino students as well. Um, they face some different challenges than what I face. My, um, you know, I was very fortunate. My my mother was a um, was a documented. Um, resident uh, immigrant um, to this country when she came from Venezuela. Uh, but um, and and most of my family has been able to um, go through the process with relative ease. Uh, however, I do have some students who are who either they themselves or their families are facing some of those challenges with documentation and the repercussions um, and the limitations um, to their potential and their abilities. Um, unfortunately. Uh, And so the conversations that I have with them, it's interesting because I do a lot more listening because I need to understand where their, what their family experience is like. I need to understand that, for example, up until recently, some of their family members may not have been able to even get a license. So there went the ability to drive, which limits your ability to be transported and get jobs and so on and so forth. Um, you know, students it, driving illegally um, right. <laughs> because they needed to. Um, so, so it's been as much of a learning experience for me. The the thing that I do hope that they have gotten is that um, everyone's experience is worth honoring, and there are moments where even within Latino culture, we have this 
huge idea of, um, you know, we call it Latinidad, where it's like this very much this we're all in it together kind of mentality. Uh, yeah. And I mean, even though there's very much that culture, I, I you know, I don't want them to ever think that they need to get lost in just cultural identity, um, which is actually a, a fairly recent movement in, in Latino cultures, especially um, second generation immigrants um, who are trying to navigate this like divide of like, I'm not quite American, not quite fully Latino. How do I, how do I act more Latino? How do I act more American? And it's, um, and it's a complicated identity to navigate. So I don't want to belittle it by simplifying it for them. And um, so all I really hope is that they just understand that major lesson that it is complicated. And it's okay that it's complicated. So, yeah. how has this? Have you noticed this affect your your book staff? Like, how does it affect the way that you cover the school and how you even have a staff? Mm-hmm. Um, we are getting to a place that is actually really exciting for me. This past year, we were talking about um, different things that we could cover that would honor um, the various cultures that are represented in our school. Um, we had one spread that we included this year that was different from what we had done before um, in the sense that we specifically highlighted the variety of cult- that we have culturally speaking. Not in its entirety, but um, but enough to get the to, to, to get that message across that we wanted to get across that we're not solely one thing. Um, it's and some of the other ideas that we were tossing around kind of build on that and they want to do more now that we've seen it. And we've also drawn inspiration. Um, just recently, I was just, I was beside myself with excitement um, when Annie, um, Annie Falkenberg to- told me about um, a mod that she included in Spanish in her book and working in the Spanish language in her, in, in various points throughout her book. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I needed. Um, Cause a lot of my students are still a little hesitant in that they don't want to make wrong moves, which is an amazing, an amazing mentality for them to have. So I want to show them, um, Hey, this is possible. Look at this. You know, um, and then we've just been growing from there. Like, you know, we want to cover what is the quinceanera experience um, and, you know, what, how does family play into that? And so um, that would be such a fascinating story uh, coming from an advisor who has seen that in their own life and then being able to translate that into like a pitch or an idea for a student to go out and mm-hmm. report on it. Um, so that's very interesting and very exciting that you're able to do that. Well, and it's great because, I mean, everywhere else in the school, they have to be a certain way. They have to act a certain way. There are specific expectations about behavior, about um, how school is. And and it's very, it's very much, I mean traditional uh, traditional american values and mentalities you know there's um specific ideas about um hierarchies and about um relationships between different groups of people um that are different in in latino culture and one of the interesting challenges for us this year is or was navigating okay these are these are major differences um how do we represent that in a book 
that is supposed to be this one thing that is filled with many things. And so I look forward to continuing that exploration um, as they as they move on because uh, our our staff is uh, is diversifying. It's been nice. Uh, we just finished our third year and. Um, every single year, our staff is looking more and more representative of our school, which is what I wanted to be. If your staff doesn't look like your school, you're not doing it right. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to honoring all those different voices as we as we get and providing the space for them to, to recognize that it's OK. Um, and it's actually encouraged for you to explore what all these identities and what all these voices are, because. If a kid on the yearbook staff is feeling it, there are you know, probably five, six, seven other kids who are feeling it around the school more. Yeah. So Yeah, and I think it's very interesting that you give them the space to explore their identities because, like you're saying, there are probably four or five other kids like them that are going through similar things. And having someone, able, uh, having someone model what exploring your identity looks like as a with all these different cultural things <laughs> going around um i think it jump starts that explorative identity for the next person and the next person the next person and um the earlier that you can do that the better your later life will be <laughs> oh so. absolutely absolutely and I, I mean i've got um just this year i learned about one of the staff members who she she was born in the United States, but her parents were at that time. I don't know if they still are, but were at that time undocumented. And uh, it was it was interesting to hear about some of those dynamics. And um, one of the things that is that I find incredibly beautiful about um, and and she's of Mexican descent. So one of the things that I find beautiful about um, her her culture um, about Mexican culture in general is how celebratory family is like celebration is massive in families and and that that connection and that bond is like that's like a gold mine for human interaction because if you can take that same feeling and bring it into a workplace situation or bring it into a position of leadership or something like that having that innate understanding you're going to draw more people in because that's already like resonating with you. You're, you guys are vibing and it's just going to be, it's going to be, you know, the, the best stuff ever, honestly. As we're talking about um, exploring identities and exploring selves, how can we get young people to be the leading lady or man in their own story? Cause I think a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but some people will take that like supporting role and mm-hmm. just kind of like go with the flow and not be in charge of their own destiny. People of diverse backgrounds, um, people of color, um, people of anywhere in the in the in the queer identity of spectrum, anywhere in um, ability or disability um, groupings and all that, there they experience from day, from the day they're born a lot of overt and subtle forms of oppression a lot of them are unintentional a lot of them are not un- are not intentional or are, are intentional and it's they receive they have this message drilled into their head and i keep saying they but it's like our too because it was me too <laughs> we have this message um drilled into our head that we are not and so 
othering is something that definitely happens. So by the time we get to um, by the time we get to an age where we start understanding that there is this thing called social dynamics, we're already at a disadvantage because we're already isolated, right. and so we're more reserved and we're more um, we're less likely to to um, make ourselves known or make um, because the last thing we want to do is stand out even more because of something that we did because we're already standing out because of something we didn't do we had no control over Um, and so it's a lot of um, deprogramming that 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 we have to overcome Um, I was lucky enough to force myself to overcome a lot of those things I don't want my students to ever have to be in that position. I want them to understand and know that who they are, even if it changes from one hour to the next, is perfectly fine. I mean, given some parameters, you probably shouldn't, <laughs> probably shouldn't go around hurting people intentionally. That's kind of a bad thing. Yeah, uh, that's, like, that's, like kind of, right? that's, that's a psychopath. Exactly. No psychopaths, please. Um, but I mean, it, it really is. Um, and it's a message that they need to receive, not just from people who have who have been through it, although, you know, that's one of those understood responsibilities of, of my position in life. I'm a mentor, I'm a role model, and whether or not they see me as such, everything I do reflects on somebody who shares any part of my identity, you know, any similarities with my identities, um, is looking at that and going, okay, that's representative of you know, this particular situation. Um, so it's not just me. It's also from the other people in their lives. Um, you know, having having advocates of other diverse backgrounds also celebrating and honoring and and lifting up and, and empowering that agency in, in our students to to explore and to be whatever identity they are um, and to see value in it. Um, is is what's key. So we need to step up as adults, I think, <laughs> in general. Love that answer. Do you um, have other teachers at your school that you work closely with on this and try to help them, and they help you? Um, we are we are pushing a lot more as a staff, and this is coming from our leadership as well, um, to be more culturally responsive and more aware of, of these differences and aware of our own biases. That's a huge one. Our principal is fantastic in that she's she constantly seeks out opportunities for people of color on staff. And if there are openings, she seeks out candidates of color that are representative of our school population to provide that that role model aspect and then uh, the people who the people within the building were working especially this like newer crop of um, within the past several years we've kind of really bonded over that um, solidarity that idea that like we need to our students really need to you know need us all of us one of my best friends on staff, I call her my work wife. Um, she's she's a special education teacher, and we've co-taught a couple of years when when I was teaching um, English classes the first two years. She she and I have had have gone back and forth with so many conversations about her experiences as a white woman from the Northeast and her awareness of of cultures and different identities and her life experiences, 
and she's just as strong of an advocate for for celebrating those those identities as I am. And so she's kind of she's well, not kind of she's become this awesome brain trust. And there are a bunch of other teachers as well that, and we're just kind of building this nice little cloud of of awesomeness. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. So switching a little bit, we like to ask a bunch of non-yearbook related questions at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, just for fun. <laughs> Who do you think taught you the best parts of yourself? And what do you think they are? Oh, so many people. I've had so many moms throughout the throughout my life. My mom, obviously. <laughs> um, she was a very, very strong-willed, very independent. She was going to make her way come hell or high water. She, I actually was a very timid, meek um, child growing up and she was this role model of advocating for myself and it was I, it was a, a lesson unfortunately I didn't learn or internalize until after she had passed away um, but she, having those lessons seeing them growing up was was an amazing experience it was what I needed um, growing up and in Tallahassee. I had a Tallahassee mom. She was my mentor teacher when I did my internship. As far as I'm concerned, she is the pinnacle of education. She is, she's the teacher that I want to be every single day of my life. She has since retired and is living the best second life as a travel agent. <laughs> so again, I really like, I would travel all over up? the world. Oh my gosh, I wish. <laughs> if I could, she's always traveling. She's the travel agent who travels. Um, no, she's, she's wonderful. And to this day, I still, you know, contact her and she's, you know, when I was in Tallahassee, she helped mold that teacher identity in me because she didn't allow me to be anything less than what I could be, which was fantastic. And she did it in the most gentle way possible, which was a stark contrast to, to my mother's style. So I got a good balance of what that looks like in, in multiple situations so I have a lot to draw from from there I've got you know I've had through my career I've had different moms um you know I'm really close to to a bunch of different families whether it be from from students families or you know uh, previous relationships or anything like that that we're still just really close and all their moms are just kind of like drawn to me and kind of show me the way I have. So I'm not kidding I really do have a lot of moms (laughs) around and all of them are the best so <laughs> right. do you have a hill on in, in your mind a hill to die on something you believe firmly in that ultimately super doesn't matter we love rants <laughs> that don't matter yeah it's a it's a rant that oh, i've got so many hills to die on. <laughs> i'm such a headstrong I, i'm a Same. virgo so oh. nobody will ever do it as as well as i will do it um <laughs> And if I mess up, I don't mess up. Um, it right. was just I intended to do it this whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now, uh, so my hill to die on in life, I'll, I'll give you two hills. My hill to die on in life is there will never be pineapple on pizza. Sorry. <laughs> you will never convince me of that. Okay. And my hill to die on in professionally speaking or everywhere else is I have it's the fairness thing and it's such a simple thing all you have to do is treat somebody else like a human being and it's one of those 
it's one of those triggers for me when I see it in the smallest way possible, whether it be the way two students interact or the way a teacher and a student interact or two teachers or whether it be, you know, how random strangers interact in the street and everything. It is one that is the thing that crawls under my skin and makes me feel the worst way possible is not treating somebody like a human being. Mm -hmm. And it's such a simple thing. And the world would be so much better if we could just like be okay with that idea. Yes. I like that. I like like both of those hills. And also one of my hills is that um, banana peppers are the best pizza topping. You are absolutely correct. (laughs) Absolutely correct. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) What novel or... Um, novel, yes. Yeah, what novel have you read recently that you would like to be adapted into a Netflix show or movie, and who would play your favorite character? So I am the worst English teacher ever, and I haven't read a novel in several years. <laughs> Aside from the ones that I'm teaching, but that doesn't really count as reading. That's no. like reading to teach, and that's a different brain resource right. that I'm using. I think it was already made, but... I have two. One is The House of the Spirits by Isabella Allende. I think that'd be a fantastic Netflix series because mm-hmm. it's it's such a long novel. But it traces the this family through generations, multiple generations. And I mean, she's not Latina, but Angelica Houston, mm. it would be amazing in it. Um for one of the for one of the maternal figures, actors, actresses, performers mm-hmm. that I, that would go in there because there are so many. There are literally like fifty seven different characters. Oh, yeah. um, so it could so, just be one of those like it'd be like the Royal Tannenbaums, yeah. like literally <laughs> everybody in Hollywood is in there. <laughs> yeah, and then the other one it would be easier to cast because there's a smaller collection of of named roles, um, and that would be the Devil and Miss Prim by Paulo Coelho. He's a Brazilian writer. He wrote The Alchemist. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And he, I mean, I was hooked from from The Alchemist on. It was one of those books that literally saved my life in high school. But The Devil and Miss Prim is such an interesting, such an interesting story about tempta- temptation and doing the right thing for you versus doing the right thing for a society. Mm. And, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um, but um, who would make a good devil because the devil is a literal character in there i think only because i i find his process so fascinating i think daniel day lewis oddly (laughs) enough could because he internalizes characters Mm -hmm. so well and he embodies them and it's the devil is such a subtle character and i really feel that daniel day lewis could pull it off and then it has to be someone that's a method actor it has to be it it definitely has to be (laughs) because I mean, his um, Coelho's way of, of of characterization really is all about the subtlety mm. um, of and the complexity of of our thoughts. I really like this question. I am a big reader, and now I have three new books to read yeah. from asking it earlier. And now yeah. I have these two. Man, I'm ready for the next. I mean, oh, yeah. we'll just ask this question. You've got a summer day. reading list yes. already. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we always end these by asking. Um, to give a paper plate award. So anybody, it is sometimes yearbook related and sometimes just somebody who needs a shout out who rocks in your life. Oh, everyone who puts up with me deserves <laughs> deserves an award. I have this thing where I feign annoying, braggy type of pride. 
it's a great defense mechanism in my life. Um, and so anybody who puts up with that is, you know, deserves not just a paper plate, but like angel wings. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Um, I think out of everybody, I think I would have to give it to my husband because he has to put up with the most. Um, but I, more so because he is quite possibly the most understanding and most supportive person. He, I don't have to explain where or why I'm going to a specific place in terms of like, you know, professionally or, or just, you know, in conversation. And he understands. And I didn't think that there was somebody who could like understand my brain, but... <laughs> He must. <laughs> and when he doesn't, he's completely unafraid to ask questions. And I need that in my life because I I suffer from having the entire conversation in my brain. And then when I say something, they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, okay, hang on. Let me back it up. Seven, 17 steps. So, yeah, definitely. I, that's supposed to be our last question. But in my... Um research on everybody i saw that your twitter handle is comma police mm -hmm. so can you give us like your number one comma rule or <laughs> whatever <laughs> yeah. whatever um okay so i will preface that answer by saying that there are actually multiple layers to my twitter handle okay. it is also a play on the radiohead song karma police um, yes okay um so there's a little bit of that in there but the comma police, um, biggest, okay, so biggest comma violation is believing that you place them wherever you take a breath. Mm -hmm. Because you've got people hyperventilating all over the place now because <laughs> okay. they just placed a comma everywhere. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, the comma is one of the toughest punctuation marks to use. Because it can be so powerful if you just put it in the right place. So that, and I love to offend my Oxford comma friends by saying, well, Associated Press doesn't. <laughs> I often say that I have comma anxiety. I'm like, I know the rules, but I'll write a comma and I'm like, that can't possibly be right. It can't be right. And I'm like, is this right? And they're like, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, <laughs> right. E.E. Um, e. Cummings taught us that, you know, rules are made to be broken. So. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sergio, for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you.